We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Comedian Russell Kane joins us on the podcast today, and in conversation with broadcaster Samira Ahmed, they discuss the intersections of class and identity in the UK, and how this influences the British comedy scene. This episode is part of our series, How I Found My Voice, hosted by Samira Ahmed. If you like this episode, do go and check out the entire series. The recording for this episode took place in April 2021. I collected index cards with all the words, all the big words that I didn't know because I don't know any big words because I don't come from that background. And every time I encountered a word, I numbered it on the card, wrote it down. I had to learn the diacritic alphabet because is it impudent? Is it impudent? I was too embarrassed to ask. And I carried those cards around with me, almost a backpack full, sat on the toilet, revising thousands of new words until they sat in my consciousness naturally and I was able to use them in conversation. My life fell apart. I literally lost two stone, lost my girlfriend, lost my job and nearly lost my house. If that isn't as close as you can get to being a heroin addict, I don't know what is. It's not that I don't love casual sex in the normal male way, of course I do, but I just get, I fall in love too easily. That's just all it is. But I'm glad I did it. Because I wouldn't want to be in the nursing home aged 80 with another 80-year-old man going, you were on telly and you didn't shag about. And welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed, and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape someone's success. 
How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is one of Britain's leading stand-up comedians. Russell Kane was nominated three times for the prestigious Edinburgh Comedy Awards before winning Best Show in 2010. And over the past decade, he's sold out critically acclaimed tours across the world and become a very familiar face on the British comedy circuit. He's appeared regularly on TV shows such as Live at the Apollo, 8 Out of 10 Cats, and being a presenter on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and the BBC Three comedy series Live at the Electric. He currently hosts two podcasts, a BBC Radio 4's Evil Genius, which puts the microscope on some of history's most famous figures, and Boys Don't Cry, which aims to explore topics that it says men desperately try to avoid talking about. Welcome to the podcast, Russell, first of all. It's really nice to have you. Hello, thank you. Yeah, great to be here. I want to start by taking you back to Mini Russell, growing up in Essex. So you're born in 1980. You're one, I guess, you could say one of Thatcher's children yes. in terms of what was going on at the time. What sort of child were you and what kind of household were you growing up in? Well, we already come to the first ambiguity of, of my existence. Primarily, I grew up in Enfield. It certainly didn't feel like London. I've been back there recently for a documentary I was making for Radio 4. It still doesn't feel like London. It feels more like Essex. It's not in Essex. So there was already a sort of, um, I'm not I'm not mean to be horrible to Enfield, but a sort of nothingness, a kind of where do I belongness that has stayed with me and, and serves me very well as a comedian, a sort of outsiderness to the place. Also, I was born in 1975. Um, oh, sorry about that. No, no. Listen, I'll go 85 if you want to keep going. Um, so I was even more uh, Thatcher's children because I can remember the thing that supercharged our ascent into the upper working class was when my dad bought our own council house in 1980. So I do just remember moving in aged five. Knowing what I know now about selling off social housing, I'm, of course, conflicted, but there's no doubt about it. I benefited from the social steroids of Thatcherism. So tell me about your mum, first of all. What was she like? Me and my mum are almost like carbon copies. It's like someone's aged me up and put a perm on, on the head. High energetic, bounce out of bed, stick with pepper army eyes stuck on, always tidying up, always hitting targets, never been in debt, super organised person. And she also worked inside the home. She did a lady, a cleaner and a childminder. Is that right? So my actual first home was a mother and baby shelter, believe it or not, just purely because my mum wanted to get a council house. So she was living in the spare room at her grandma's. So she intentionally made herself homeless, as it were, so we could get a council flat. So the first few years was just getting housed, raising babies, me and my brother. Then after that, my mum worked as a dinner lady or a, a childminder, and then latterly as a, a cleaner, domestic and commercial. She would do factories as well as private houses. It sounds like you're really fond of her and she was a big influence on you. Let's talk about your dad. And I've got a quote. You've described him as this dominating silverback Essex male who's into everything <laughs> that's masculine. This is one I'll never forget. I'll take this one to the nursing home with me, right? We were out having a ploughman's over the Warren Wood in Epping, right? A blue bottle landed on my dad's cheddar, right? Now, most mentally normal humans and abnormal ones would waft the fly away. Would you not? Chop my old man did. This is the most pathetic, impotent display of testosterone I've ever seen in my life. He leant in to that fly about this far from its wings and went, wanker! At a fly. <laughs> I know he's a big part of what you talk about in your comedy too. How did you see yourself in comparison to him? Well, recently I did a, one of those DNA test things online. I'm very dark colouring, so I just wondered, where, you know, where's my blood from sort of thing. And I've got to be honest, 
part of me thought, what if I turn out not to be my dad's child after all? You know, he's just so different to someone. We lived in the same house. We were on different planets. He was bodybuilder, blonde hair, blue eyes, 5% body fat, doorman, lifeguard, sheet metal worker, welder, rugby player. He used to make nunchucks, which are the bits of wood Bruce Lee beat people up with and sell them down the pub. You know, Ben metal with his bare hands and he's got me for a son copying dances with a glittery question mark over my head. Very camp, no girlfriend, didn't even kiss a girl before I was 17. We did not speak the same language. It was like someone who speaks French and someone who speaks Mandarin trying to have a conversation emotionally. That was us. We were just not on different planets. And he's like, how come you ain't got a bird yet? Yo, shagging 100 birds a week by the time I was your age. We did rugby at my school. I used to pick up the rugby ball, boy, and I would walk. And the people wouldn't even tackle me out of fear. And I would walk it to the touchline and touch the ball. And I had like one pube at this point. I literally, by 15, I had one chest pube. That was it. My body did hit puberty, but I stayed a child until my dad died. I would say I was 28 when my dad deceased and I was still felt 12 in his presence. I mean, you talk about it in this amazing articulate way. But can I ask, looking back, do you think you were unhappy? How did you feel as a kid? Obviously, as a teenager, a miserable, screaming, goth force of nature. But I've learned now that not all teenagers are like that. So I did have a quite a tough time of it from the age of about 14 to about 21. Hated my skin, hated life. I mean, my house was here in the middle. Two ways that way was weed. Another door along was solid, cannabis, resin. One day that way, amphetamine. And two more doors that way was trips and eat and ecstasy. So it was just normal to fucking take drugs that's probably what caused my difficult later adolescence pouring all this poison into my body but I have no memories of being unhappy as a child and no memories of feeling poor I thought we were absolutely minted we had our own council house my dad dug a swimming pool in the back garden with his bare hands what and yeah he got he hired a digger dug a, a six foot deep ditch, 21 foot long, sunk a swimming pool in. He was a good build. So to me, we we were like living the high life. It's only when I got to literally to 1920 and I was working in a shop for nine grand a year, I thought, just because of where I've been born, I'm not at Oxford or Cambridge. How fucking out of order is that? And, and was furious. But looking back now, my dad was constantly negative, always moaned and could ruin any day out by moaning. Did it make me unhappy? No, I found it funny. I mean, we could be going to Stansted Airport to go to Menorca on our first ever holiday when I was 12. And I bet you the traffic shit. I bet you if we get ripped off for the food, I bet the food's cold on the plane. Everything in advance is going to be shit. Now, anything I tried, you're going to take that up, waste of time, you'll fail at it. Waste of time. But instead of it crushing me and me being in therapy, I just sort of laughed it off and succeeded to spite him. Well, tell me then, how early were you nurturing your interest in jokes and books and that sort of environment? Not at all. Never. There was no reading, no literature, no drama and no virtually no theatre in my childhood, apart from the local pantomime society, because I clearly had something going on and my mum didn't know what to do with me. I was an absolute bored, 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 constantly bored. So they put me to things where I could show off. So I did the panto when I was 11 and 12. I did some extra work on Grange Hill and I, and I auditioned for The Bill and did a little part in that. But other than that, it's hard for people to understand 
or they think you're exaggerating. But when you grow up in a bog standard council street working class childhood, you're not abused or deprived. This is just normal. There is no theatre. There are no books on the shelf. Why would there be books on the shelf? Books are boring. There's the microwave cookbook, my dad's diving manual. We didn't go to theatre in the holidays and, and to museums. And we just chilled out in the garden. And uh, uh, that was it. And then the big thing was a curry or a takeaway at, on Saturday. That was the big, massive, operatic thing we look forward to. Or all-inclusive for a week in Spain. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I had this raw addiction to story that would... Well, it meant I, I was a bit of a liar for a while and storytelling and making my friends laugh. I had no idea that could be monetized or put into a career. Got to 19, I was literally on a cigarette break in a shop, hating my life. I was selling Rolexes. It was constantly rich English people with boys that looked like me, same height, same meat on the same bones, that spoke different, that were getting their graduation watches. Why? Just because of the prejudice of society and the way society is structured, me, by my accident of my birth, had fulfilled exactly what you could have predicted in 1975. Something snapped. I was like, no. Stubbed my cigarette out. And um, I was living with my nan at that point because I had a row with my dad. And I sent off for A-levels and I studied them out of a box in my nan's spare room. I got the fastest ever sociology A-grade from enrol to A-grade. And I won an award from Betty Boothroyd. My mum's got the picture on her wall. Then I got really angry when I saw the structures that were in place that had led to me not going to Oxford and Cambridge. Who knows whether I'm bright enough? I never had the opportunity to find out. You know, I was destined on this path 
And it's only if you get an awakening, like I did, that I thought I'm not having it. I got the A-level, then I got to uni, then you couldn't stop me. Then I got a first and I came out and I went into an ad agency. Then I was head of copy within 18 months. Only then did someone say to me, you make people laugh the whole time. And I was like, yeah, I've been like it since I'm a kid. Why don't you try stand-up? What, Bernard Manning? No, no, I don't like stuff. That's what I thought it was. You weren't aware of that whole nothing. alternative comedy scene Zero. Uh, the only thing I'd ever seen was The Young Ones and Blackadder and things like that. Can't bear American comedy with its posturing and slick punchlines. Doesn't speak to me at all. So for me, comedy was Jim Davison, Bernard Manning. This is what my dad watched and howled laughing at the racist jokes. And I'm clubbing in North London to... Uh, drum and bass, which is all about unity and hugging someone a different colour to you on the dance floor and going home at six in the morning. How can Bernard Manning speak to me? I wasn't offended and being all lefty and covered in a hummus blanket going racial equality. It just didn't, it just didn't speak to me. It's only when someone said, what about Edinburgh Festival, which I thought was ballet and opera, that I hit Google. We had a shared computer at work. 2002, this is just before my dad died. You know, when something you're vaguely aware of something. I don't know what Peloton is. I just know everyone's doing it at the moment. But I would have to sit down and research Peloton. That's how I was about stand-up. And I saw what these guys were doing. They didn't have punchlines. They spoke about themselves. There were people that were really funny. No one that looked like me. I'd never been to see live comedy ever in my entire life. So I went, watched it once, thought, well, I could definitely do it better than that and booked a gig the next week. <laughs> So that happened for us. I want to just fill in some of the gaps for the for the audience who may not have quite kept up to speed. So you're working in a watch shop. You have this epiphany moment where you just think, I could do better. And I think you wrote in your diary, didn't you, that today's the day That's right. everything changes. It, it wasn't as quite... I, I'm, sort of, I'm falsely representing my epiphany there because an epiphany is generated within one's self. Whereas what had actually happened was, as I was addled with some sort of substance, let's call it sherry, at five in the morning on a dance floor to Hard House, this beautiful girl had come across the dance floor and put her number in my hand. This was to become my second great love of my life, age 19. So we were going back to hers, which was halls. And I was waking up in halls to watch people toddle across a lawn at 10am after having a lie-in, drinking beer, discussing ideas, giving it the biggin on a, pe a beautiful piece of green lawn, while I, like a peasant, waited for a train to drag myself into a job I hated. And I was so disgusted at my ignorance and how much I naturally love what literature I had encountered, something just broke. So that's what led to the epiphanic moment. And I just started reading like someone, I was getting up at six and having two hours formal reading. And I read like, I don't know if you've ever read, um, I think it's Nausea by Sartre. There's a character called the autodidact in it, who's a figure of fun, who reads from A to Z and through again till he's caught up the elites. I admired that character. I only knew what my dad had taught me, which is you dig a foundation, you build a brick, you do it one by one, you build it bigger and stronger than everyone else. So I thought, well, you can't stop me going from Austin to Zola and back again. And so by the time I got to uni, 18 months later, I was already talking about literature in a way that was more passionate than the kids that had been bored by it, even though I didn't have the depth of knowledge yet. So, but while I was at uni, I was completing my work like a fly landing on a surface and then reading at 5am all the books that were missing from my knowledge. I hid this for years. I was so ashamed. I collected index cards with all the words, all the big words that I didn't know because I don't know any big words because I don't come from that background. And every time I encountered a word, I didn't look it up in a dictionary like someone who truly had a breakdown. But if I, I'll never forget the first word I encountered appropriately was impudent. It was in Pride and Prejudice, the first book I read on this journey to fill in the gaps. And every time I encountered a word, I numbered it on the card, wrote it down. I had to learn the diacritic 
alphabet because is it impudent? Is it impudent? I was too embarrassed to ask. Yeah. I didn't want to make an idiot of myself. So I learned the diacritic marks. I learned the cognates, impudent, impudence, impudently. And I carried those cards around with me, almost a backpack full, sat on the toilet, revising thousands of new words until they sat in my consciousness naturally and I was able to use them in conversation without feeling artificial. You burnt those cards, didn't you? Burnt them, yeah. I was so ashamed of them. I was so ashamed. It felt like fake. So if I say to you, I'm having a terrible time with the children today, they've been so obstreperous, I don't feel like I've got the right to use the word obstreperous because I've learnt it artificially. I can only describe it as a bit feeling analogous to someone who's come here from another country or a first generation immigrant. Mm. I hear these people speaking and I have to keep quiet like I haven't got a right to join in because I'm just a white bloke. But I identify so often with the imposter not fitting in, not part of the elite mainstream thing. But because of the colour of my skin, I get muddled in with everyone who had the breaks. Very frustrating. I still now would be uncomfortable using the word obstreperous, for example, even though I've encountered it in Iris Murdoch and A.S. Byatt countless times. I still wouldn't use that word, even if I felt it was the right word, because it sits uncomfortably in my accent. Pathetic, really. Well, it's, tra- no, it's tragic. It's, 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 I, it's think a, you're, I think you're hard on yourself. Well, on, I'm just being honest with you. There's an, an embarrassment would surge as I use the word. I probably would use it because of, I'm a courageous show-off person. But inside, it would feel plastic, like I should have said... They've been noisy today or they've been disturbing me. Like I should have used cleaner, simpler language. Have I used the word obstreperous because it's the most appropriate word to use and just happens to be polysyllabic? Or have I used it because it feels impressive and like I've got a first and I need to let you know? That's the way you live your life. And I'm guessing it's the same for people of colour, but in, in different ways they feel in certain situations. about your experience in advertising because you started on £100 a week not long after graduating with a first class degree and you became head copywriter at that agency so again you know you just when you choose something you apply yourself you fly because copywriting is so often about that killer line and making that hit with an audience do you think there were any skills there that have actually been useful in your career as a as a stand-up every single day Evil genius would not exist. Um, Half the things you've just described would not exist. Half my stand-up. And the reason being is I'm very big in putting a framework, like you have behind this podcast, so finding my voice, you've sat down, you've gone, this is what it's about. Around it, you've drawn a frame to, to really hone that chat. Well, that's what I do with every single idea I pitch, and that that's pure from my advertising. I'm also quite good. I have no attachment to anything I write. I love a joke being rejected. It's it's a relief to bin work. That comes from the advertising day where you can spend all day high-fiving your art director, only for your creative director to go, it's dog shit, throw it in the bin. And eventually you just don't feel anything anymore. Great, great training for stand-up. If you're a stand-up that is wedded to your joke, regardless of laughter incoming, you will not progress. 
So laughter is the creative director and I'm able to very, very quickly go, I don't care if it's an 8 out of 10, it's not a 10 out of 10, in the bin it goes. This is probably a hilarious <laughs> moment to reveal that I've been married to a copywriter for 25 years. <laughs> and it's... So it's probably quite hard to criticise. <laughs> no, but it's so true. So much of what you say about the importance of rejecting stuff, but also the partnership, the, the to and fro with his art director was like a comedy writing partnership. Yes. You have compared your first experience of stand-up to being addicted to heroin. What did you mean by that? When I was at school, there was this advertising campaign where you tried it, you'll be sick, but you'll come back for more. And it was the needle going in and the girl was throwing up. That and HIV were the things I grew Mm. up completely terrified of, thanks to the advertising. I mean, you know, I I almost spent my teen years just wrapped in a condom saying no to drugs. So what happened was, you've got to bear in mind all the background we've just set up. All of my family, they're all lovely people, but no one's, no one's ever sat on a pink fluffy couch and been told to think up headlines for an obscene amount of what to me was an obscene wage every year. So I'm head copywriter, earning good money. I've got a flat in Clapham. I've got pedigree cats. I know what hummus is. I've made it, yeah? And I start doing this comedy thing in the evening and I tried it and I was like, what the dickens was that when the first laugh hit? Like a rush, like a complete endorphin, ego completion rush, way beyond any of the drugs I've tried, MDMA or whatever. You want more of it and you want more of it. You don't want more of it next week. You want more of it the next night. You want it twice a night. The advertising world doesn't work like that. You have to suddenly be available till 9pm. You have to suddenly be available at the weekend. I was getting out of work at 6pm in Fulham and driving to Manchester to do 20 minutes for no money just to feel the hit. And the reason it's analogous to heroin, in case people think I'm being offensive, is my life fell apart. My job started to fall apart. My relationship fell apart. I couldn't look after my pets. I lost nearly a stone in weight where I had had stage fright, which was as yet untreated. I was being sick, diarrhea, both. So I literally lost two stone, lost my girlfriend, lost my job and nearly lost my house. If that isn't as close as you can get to being a heroin addict, I don't know what is. So I've got two questions about that. Obviously, you love doing it. What sort of material were you producing? And did you not have, you know... Downers in the sense of heckles or, you know, you mentioned stage fright. Of course, there's downers and risks with the high going wrong, just to follow the metaphor. Sadly, as a male stand-up, as you'll know, if you haven't watched any new ones, it's sort of a, the field of discussion is quite pelvic. You tend to just go on with your funny story you tell your mates down the pub and a few wanking jokes. I was no different to any other person who didn't know what they were doing. The one advantage I had over every other new person was I'd never watched stand-up and have no respect or passion for American stand-up. So I wasn't trying to go, here's my killer insight that's going to trend. There was no punchlines. It was me going off on one at high energy. It was a bit random. It was quite chaotic, which is what I'm like. It's taking all my willpower to rein the horse in talking to you. It's just So I just monetized or publicized my personality. I don't really have material. I just hand me a microphone and do me. South end, south end, south end. <laughs> I used to come here every weekend. My dad's from this area, he's from Lee, and then Barking. Then I did a bit of growing up in Enfield. Now I'm back here, living in Westcliff. And you bring friends down to party in South End. You have to see South End High Street. And it freaks people out, people with the traditional Essex walk, walking down. <laughs> That's created by the pigeons on the High Street. Got a fucking state of those, Gary. So the, the most bizarre coincidence happened, of course, the month I tried this. My dad dropped down dead from a heart attack in the same month. I mean, it's almost Shakespearean, like, the king is dead, long live the king. When my dad hit the deck, 
I mean, literally two days later, I was on stage. In between him suddenly dying and the funeral, I did two shows. Bearing in mind, my brother is very, very severely mentally ill. So I'm looking after my brother. I'm looking after my mum and all the fallout of that. My dad's died on holiday. I've had to fly to Cyprus to help my mum with arranging the body to be repatriated. I did a gig the night before I flew to Cyprus. I did a gig when I landed. This is crazy behaviour. So once my dad passed away, it freed up in me the biographical stuff that I probably wouldn't have had the courage to say, making fun of him, basically. Once I freed that up, it was fifth gear. And then I just had to leave work in 2006 because the success started coming, winning competitions and things. Tell me when you knew you'd won through and this was your career. You, you said you started winning competitions. In 2006, I saved up enough money so that I could try it for six months. And I knew I needed to earn £400 a week. It certainly wasn't then. I thought I was in with a good chance because I'd won this competition, a small one called Laughing Horse for New Acts. And I'd been signed by Avalon, who's a big agency. So I knew I was in with a good good shout, but it was by no means slam dunk. I left the work in the March, three months in. It was fun. I was driving around doing my regional gigs. I smashed every gig I did, which I knew not everyone else did. I'm not showing off. It's just a fact. I'd found a weird performance style high energy bastard, which is what I am in real life. I'd been toning it down up till then for two years and I just let it free on stage. I got my first big TV job filming in America. They flew me first class. I was like, that's pretty good. That was enough cash to survive for two years. Went up to Edinburgh 2006, got nominated for the newcomer and the buzz. And I thought I could make a career out of this. By 2010, I knew that this was probably going to be my life, but like all good working class people, do I ever think about going back to copywriting? Is it floating there like a life raft? Absolutely, yes. Would I still enjoy it? Yes, because like a lot of people would struggle to go and work in a shop if they'd had some fame because everyone would be like, oh, you're a comedian, you're working in Little Gutted. Whereas if I was to work in an ad agency, it would be an asset that I'd done this. I think it would help with brands and pitches. I think people would trust me with like a pot noodle or a brand like that that had humour at the core. So I've always felt safe through my earlier work, that there's this lifeboat floating. And that's the thing that enables people to experiment in the creative arts. This is why it's so important we don't lose a generation of poorer working class kids who don't have that life raft because they won't have the courage to try what I've tried if they're not as lucky as... I know I made my own luck, but I still made it. Some people don't have that, particularly off the back of COVID. I want to ask a bit about your phase that you went through where you were sort of wearing eyeliner, dyeing your hair. Mm-hmm. And I think you had a particular persona on stage. It's good to be, some of you struggling to recognise me, but I couldn't look more different from the last time I did the Apollo. So deep has the crisis in my life gone. Look at the state of me. Look at me. I've got one for a, my crisis is so bad. I've gone for a makeover and come out the other end looking like the aborted triplet of Jedward. That's how serious it is. Get rid of it, mother. It's not one of ours. Right? I have to say, looking back at that, I, I rather like it. There's a whole new romantic vibe about yeah. it. How do you look back at that time? And do you feel perhaps you'd lost your way a bit in terms of your voice? I think it was a bad mistake, is the answer, that cost me... Well, I don't know what it cost me. No one ever told me I didn't get a job because of the way I look. Um, but we we know that happens in this business. So what actually happened was I... I was unhealthily obsessed with winning this, what I think is the biggest award in my industry. So people think it's a BAFTA. It's not. It's called the Perrier Award. It's a stand-up award in Edinburgh. I don't care if I go win an Oscar for acting, which could never happen because I'm not a very good actor in 10 years. It will never be more to me than that because to win the award for being the funniest person at the greatest comedy, I mean, it just blows your mind that you could even be nominated. 
and I won it. There's no doubt about it. It went to my head a little bit, but I think it, I was like, well, what's the problem with it going to my head? I didn't start acting irresponsibly. I was still in a stable relationship at this point. I wasn't sleeping around. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't getting ridiculously drunk every night of the week. I was paying my mortgage. But I thought, now I can really show off on stage and express myself and really be attention-seeking and weird, like which is my normal personality. You would think stand-up is the one place where you can go for it and be you, this lefty liberal paradise I live in where everyone's accepted and represented. Well, that ain't true. Because the moment I started sticking eyeliner on and spiking my hair, I don't think it would have been a problem if I'd started that way. The problem was I'd gone from Boy Next Door, My Dad Council House, Where's My Perrier Award, to spiky hair, skinny jeans, eyeliner type look. As far as I know, the material was pretty consistent looking back. I think what you've got to understand about comedy as an art form is it's different to being a novelist, a poet, even a playwright. Although I, I should understand- say you've been at least two of those things. Yes. You've got a novel and you've had a play put on at the RSC. So if I write a novel and the novel is the thing, okay, and the novel is the thing, it's either good or it isn't, it's either Midnight's Children or it's not, for example. Whereas the comedy, the actual, the human is the thing even more so than singing. With stand-up, particularly if you're an autobiographical stand-up, you are the vessel for the art. If you do stand-up all based on authenticity and emotional truth and my dad this and my dad that, and you suddenly change your look, lie about your age and the way you portray yourself, it calls into question the authenticity of the material that has been formally laid out. That's what happened. In other words, shorthand, oh, you're a fake, fuck off then. So what was happening is my TV work was ridiculous. I, I was seven days a week, seven nights on, 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 on. It was growing, growing like a beast. The theatre numbers, they weren't declining, but they were levelling. So I realised it's time to get real. It didn't help that the girl I was with at the time was this really beautiful girl who happened to be into that look. And I'm a bit of a chameleon. I'm. It's kind of you to say I'm a strong character and used to being in control, but I'm very, very changed depending on who I'm around, to be honest. And so I just copied what she was wearing. I'll admit it. I thought it was cool. It didn't go further than that. So when a friend of mine was kind enough to say, this is what people are saying about you, And when the new girl I'd met, who I'm now married to, happily said, you look like a dickhead, you're a good looking boy, please stop dressing like that for attention. So I got slapped around the face from the woman, slapped around the face from a friend. I changed my management to a management that's more brutal with me. I need someone that tells me you're being a bell end stop. Boom, everything fell into place. And the last five years, it's like... Describe, would you describe your comedic voice now? It's the same. High energy, frenetic, observational, sociological, autobiographical. Definitely the same. What changed was my aesthetic and social behaviour. And it's an issue when you're a stand-up. It's an issue when you're in certain presenting roles. If you're the warm, fuzzy, family-type person presenting this morning and you're not living that in your personal life, it's probably going to affect your day job. Well, for me, it was affecting the the way my comedy was perceived. And my audience age was going down as well. So I was getting older and my crowds were getting younger. That's interesting. Yeah. 
And the pro- what do you put that down to? Everything I was doing. I'm a rock star. You know, idiotic behaviour. Now my audiences are 25 to, to 50, exactly where I want them. I've got another question that's specifically about the craft of what you do then, which is how do you get yourself ready before a gig? I had to have some help with the, the stage fright. So I had a little bit of, not like laying back in a couch therapy, sort of practical tips. As I said, I was getting physically ill. It's about diet, nutrition, exercise, keeping the actual, the bit I can control, the physical rig, as we say in Essex, my rig, my body. So I just optimise that for performance. I don't eat too heavy, not too much sugar before, really focused. It's two different worlds. If I'm going into a tour show of 5,000 people at the Hammersmith Apollo, which seems like another age now, but don't get me wrong, I am absolutely wired but they're all people that have paid to see me. They'll want to laugh. As soon as my trainer goes out, my shoe, I should say, trainer was the old me. As soon as my shoe goes out from the side of the stage, oh, it's Russell's shoe. Completely different vibe to if it's, I don't know, Peter Kay's big comedy roadshow and I'm just one of the acts on it. And everyone's come to see Peter and John Bishop and Catherine Ryan and Sarah Millican and no one's come to see me. That's the old type of nerves then. Then I have to find physical activities, jumping up and down, pacing, diversion, audio books. I listen to an audio book until the last possible minute. Even to, before I did this today, I had my audio book on to try and be elsewhere in something, warming up the brain, but elsewhere. One other question related to your kind of fame, which is you kind of went through a period where, you know, let's face it, you could sleep with anyone and it sounds like you were having a pretty wild life. Um, it wasn't that, it wasn't, look- but it wasn't the same as the spiky haired phase. They were two different phases, weirdly. Okay. So when was it? And how do you look back at that time when it was all a bit wild? Well, it was... I know that you're in a very different place it was now. Nine, it was nine months, which I don't know if it's significant. I'm sure the uh, psychologist would say the exact term to <laughs> grow a baby. I was single. I'd finished the spiky haired phase, realised I made a say I was just sort of toning it down. So I had like combed, but still had an earring in. I was, I was like, you know, when you see the Hulk, they had an acto in the Hulk series just to play halfway between David Banner and the Hulk. So I was that actor for about six months. <laughs> I split... <laughs> I split up with the girl I was with and it was my mum, believe it or not, mothers listening, who said to me, Russell, I'm so sick of you coming home with the one that you're definitely going to marry. I had 30 odd, 35, never had a one night stand, never been on a lad's holiday, never had sex on holiday with someone who I hadn't gone on holiday with. I'd never been single. I'd never lived in a flat on my own. I'd never done anything that most men or boys from my background do. I know maybe you could say we shouldn't be doing it, but I was the only one I knew. And mixed with all the female attention I was getting, the mind obviously does wonder, I'm only human, what would it be like to have a one night stand? My mum said to me, she didn't say go out and bang everyone. She went, please do not get into another relationship for a year because it will fail. I was a serial monogamist from the age of 17 when I lost my virginity. Three years break up, three years break up, three years break up. And with the girl who I was with at the time, there was a year. That was my shortest ever sexual relationship, one year. And so I was just on purpose, a sort of controlled experiment. I call it the emotional condom. Even if I had feelings for a girl, which I do, because I've obviously got some issues going on that make me fall in love with anyone who sleeps with me, I did not pursue them on purpose. I denied the feelings. Every single female who I went on a date with, if I can euphemise, they almost got like a consent sheet. This is where my head's at. 
I have no interest in a relationship. I'm just interested in partying. And lo and behold, of course, 2015, whatever it was, that's what the, most of the girls were up for, even more than me. You know, I couldn't even get them to text me back. I thought I was going to be single for five years and date all these like, supermodels. On that, I think about what just a pitiful number of girls in. I sort of met Lindsay and fell in love. I'm now married to with a baby. But I'd, I've tried it. I know the grass isn't greener. It's not that I don't love casual sex in the normal male way. Of course I do. I fall in love too easily. That's just all it is. And of course, Lindsay came along and we just, I did second date. Yeah, man, I'm just using you for a third date. Now I'm just using you to go to the cinema and for Pizza Express. And I think I love you. That was it. We were done. But I lasted till the August. So I did the February to the August. But I'm glad I did it because I wouldn't want to be in the nursing home aged 80 with another 80 year old man going, you were on telly and you didn't shag about. You know what? (laughs) The one line I'm going to take away from this whole interview is Russell Kane. I fall in love too easily. I'm sure that's a Frank Sinatra song. Because of what we've just spoken about, I'm fascinated by how you very deliberately talk about themes about masculinity in a lot of your projects, like, you know, the Boys Don't Cry podcast. I've been going on my Facebook page and other pages saying, what should we talk about? Where do you think men and women are different? And this one keeps coming back again and again and again. Anger. Mm. Anger, anger, anger. There is no denying it. Boys are worse than girls. More angry. They're not just more angry, Aiden. I think you could get a man and a woman equally angry about the same thing, but the reaction is different. That's obviously a genuine interest of yours. It's not just because it's trendy now or whatever. Tell me why that subject fascinates you so much. So there's two things going on at the moment. And this started, I promise you, this started after I started Boys Don't Cry, this real drive for men to talk about mental health. When I started Boys Don't Cry, there was a bit of a sort of sneer in the room from a certain type of highly educated female. Oh, my God, can we not even have, you know, emotional disorder? Oh, you've got to get in on it now, you incel. It was a bit of that. You forget how much we've changed in the last four or five years, how long I've been doing it. Mm. At the start, when if a man had tweeted, when are we going to talk about what men's wrong with men and men's... Oh, shut up, patriarch. You got a lot of that. But what I think women have realised, particularly feminists, is if we do not fix what is wrong with men... Feminism can only go so far because last time I checked, men and women live on the planet together. If you put a feminist from the 60s in a time machine, but I imagine they would be crushed to see how men have dropped down to be equally body dysmorphic, suicidal, depressed. Male anorexia on the rise, male steroid abuse on the rise, men waxing themselves, shaving their bits. There's not a hair left on a fucking scrotum on a man under 30. Men have descended, pardon the pun, after having the word scrotum before. We've come down. So if we're coming down, it can't Mm. just be patriarchy. It must mean there's this toxic cancer in the middle pulling us in like a dark star so that we all look like shaved, Botox-filled, insecure beach balls. All of us, men, female and non-binary. Well, let's attack what's going on in the middle. And a large part of it is working class lads. And there's brilliant resources for men like me who are quite confident talking about their feelings. Not many people are willing to admit the uncomfortable truth that they don't reach Gary, Dave, Lee and Wayne who think it's stupid, effeminate and silly to talk about your feelings. You're not going to reach them on Radio 4. So I wanted to create a space where it's more banter and a bit more earthy and we just Trojan in this stuff. 
because that's how the boys working class WhatsApp group works. It's you seen this naked picture. What about that football result? Oh, I think I might be depressed. Here's a goat being wanked off. Wait a minute. What was the last message? You've got to look. In between the goat porn and the salacious picture of a woman and the football result, my mate Wayne was telling me something was wrong. Well, that's what it's like being a working class man. It's like hunting with Rafe Fiennes for, uh, for treasure in that film that's just dropped on Netflix. That's why you... That, oh, the Dig. The Dig. <laughs> the Dig, which in Essex also means insult or banter. So it's a happy pun that there's a space there that I want to occupy. Well, can I just put a question in here? One of the audience members has submitted this really good question, Alexa Mason. Fascinating discussion. I'm interested in hearing Russell's views on commentators and politicians who constantly put the educational attainment record of white working class boys against ethnic minorities. Mm. And there is this moment right now where there's a lot of political attention about white working class underachievement, but it feels like it's also being pitted as uh, Alexa says. What's your view on all that? I hate it. It annoys me so much. I have nothing in common with an eaten-educated white man and I don't have anything in common with a Ghanaian lad who grew up with a barrister, mum and a pharmacist for a dad. I've got nothing in common with you. I've got everything in common with the Jamaican carpenter guy who wants to go to university. What the hell has race got to do with our situation when it comes to access to education? It shouldn't be in there. It should just be working class people and people, I call it um, quiet voice. So you handed a number of things when you're born that turn the volume down on your voice. Each time the dial gets turned. If you're born a woman, it turns down 20%. If you're born black or Asian, actually, they're different dials, but they're turned down different percents. If you're born poor, it's turned down another percent. They're also So I've got volume based on being white and male. No doubt about it. But a massive dial turn by daring to be born working class. What we need to do is I need to look at my female uh, compatriots, without sounding too Corbyn-y here, and my patri- uh, my friends of colour go, we should be working together because we're all, our volume, although slightly different, is all down here at the bottom. None of us are going to get to go to Oxford. That should be all one category that's lifted together. And I can't bear the tokenistic, oh, we've got representation here because Andrew's from Ghana and he's like, his dad went to eat and he went to eat. And it's not, you're not representing anyone who started life with fuck all. So I'm not throwing away the importance of race and racial representation, how much easier I've got it because I'm white. There's no doubt about it. It's not even controversial. Only an idiot would. Uh, Someone with a union Jack Bulldog tattoo would debate that. I'm just trying to point out how much I have in common with these people. I hate the phrase white working class. To me, it's a racist phrase almost because it engenders a division that's not useful. It's useful to talk about black and white when we're discussing equality that's based on race. It's not useful if we're trying to make out, oh, I'm more less likely to get to Oxford than you because there's clearly something wrong with the education system where if you're born in a council estate, you're not going to get to Oxford. The way that you talk and the way that you think and the fact that you're a natural communicator as a stand-up, people must have approached you about going into politics more professionally. Have they? Yes. I've been approached to sort of write jokes behind the scenes for various politicians, which I haven't done. My actual politics are, I mean, I'm a registered member of the Green Party. Lame. But I am. Why? Because I don't want my grandchildren to die in a fireball. I mean, it's it's that shallow. My personal politics would be, 
I want to coin the phrase real economique. I'm sick of this idealism. Socialism no longer serves working class people. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. I'm sorry if you don't want to hear it, but I can tell you what's said in the pubs, the flats and on the WhatsApp groups. And I promise you it's not people going, well, at least Corbyn was fighting for people like us. Those days are gone. Thatcher stuck chloroform over the mouth and killed it. Gone forever. Stop trying. Socialism is now something you can do when you can afford to do it. (laughs) You have to be able to afford to be socialist. How fucked up is that? The richer you are, the more likely you are to be left wing now. That blows my freaking mind. So let's bring the real world back into politics. That's what I would do. I would go to the Greens. I would join them to the Lib Dems and I would say, this is it. Cynical, capitalist, money-making, left-wing politics. Let's try it. Let's just fucking try it because every working-class person with nothing that I know, that's my family, who I love and care about, wants a posh car, wants a massive telly and wants a posh holiday. They don't want to share their sack of grain around with Neighbour 147 at the cloth making factory. It's gone. But I'll never go into politics because it's too much fun making fun of politicians. And I love what I do. For a man who's made up for lost time by, I think, living at triple speed, tell us finally, what's your plan? How are you going to use your voice in the the years ahead? Let's look to lockdown lifting and what you have planned. I love writing. That's my first passion. So I am working on another on another novel, not first person. I think that's the mistake I made last time. Um, so I'm going to write something much funnier. I've got a sitcom script, which is now finished, and I've got, I'm attaching names to that. That's really exciting. They're all like my um, vanity passion projects. But I'm very conscious of what I call floating bumhole syndrome. And floating bumhole syndrome is this bumhole that floats next to you just trying to tempt you to disappear up it at all times and forget that you are just a jester born to make people laugh. It's the same bumhole that would tell me to go into politics or that I'm a literary novelist or I'm an artist or a fashion icon. Up the bumhole, gone. No, I will not go up there. I will be a lowly jester until the Ken Dodd bones in me dissolve. <laughs> so my plan is tour, 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 nursing home death. Russell, Kane, it has been an utter joy spending this hour with you. Thank you so much for no, sharing you. how you found your voice. Thank you. Please recycle. <laughs> thank you, bye. <laughs> this podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. 